I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing Jonathan Martin and Carl Rove about Jonathan's new bestseller, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future, which came out May 3, 2022. We did the interview as a program for the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth in front of a large live audience in Dallas on May 23, 2022. Enjoy. President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I am thrilled with this crowd. So happy to see all of you. Thank you for coming for this very special program we have this evening with New York Times journalist Jonathan Martin and former Deputy Chief of Staff and Senior Advisor Carl Rove. We have our moderator, Talmadge Boston. I also want to thank our Warwick Melrose Hotel for their fabulous partnership. We always love being here, so thank you. I'd also like to thank our newest corporate member, NEC Corporation of America. So I have uh, spoken with a few of you about this tonight, and I expect results. If you're not a member of our council yet, we need to change that, and we need to change it quickly. So do join us. Enjoy, uh, join our engaged and informed citizenry. I want to see you more. I want to see you at programs. You can check out our website at dfwworld.org. So join us. And now I would like to introduce the moderator for this evening. Talmadge Boston is a partner at Shackelford Law Firm. He's a former board member of ours, and he's also a Malin Circle recipient, or a member, more of a member. He is a current member of our Malin Circle. He is the author of four history books covering baseball, legal history, and presidential history. He is an expert interviewer and litigator, and he is based here in Dallas. We are in for a treat for this evening. I welcome him to the podium. Thank you, Talmadge. Well, as you know, we're here tonight to celebrate this brand new book with the author Jonathan Martin and Carl Rove. Uh, a week ago, it opened at number three on the New York Times bestseller list. This week, it's number five. It's competing against all these celebrity autobiographies written by other people. But uh, as Liz mentioned, uh, Jonathan is a, a national political correspondent for the New York Times. He's also a commentator on uh, CNN and has worked as a senior political writer at Politico. So please welcome uh, Jonathan Martin and Carl Rove to the stage. All right. Well, to get to talking about this wonderful book, Jonathan, you open it with a description of what happened at our nation's capital on January 6, 2021. And then at the end of the book, you say that what happened that day did not even temporarily 
jar the country from its ultra-factional politics. Why not? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's good to be back in the Metroplex. This is a, um, a place that's close to our heart. My wife Betsy is here uh, with our friend Parker uh, uh, because our, our uh, kiddo Ella is a, a rising junior over at TCU in Fort Worth. So we spend a lot of time at DFW. Frogs up, um, and uh, so we're we're very familiar with the area, and it's it's good to be back uh, for the book. Thanks for having me. Thanks for y'all for coming. What was so striking about January sixth? Because I was in the Capitol that day. I evacuated with the Senate um, and spent most of the afternoon with with the U.S. Senate in a nearby Senate office building. Was there was some hope uh, among. Uh, lawmakers that maybe, just maybe, this um, really alarming uh, riot and you know, would-be insurrection would sort of bring the country together, a country that for you know nearly a year had been uh, dealing with the coronavirus pandemic, that had only driven folks further apart, sort of accentuated uh, the partisan divisions rather than um, sort of taming them. And I think there was a thought. In fact, I spoke with Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, that afternoon. He he said, you know, this is the kind of thing that typically can sort of bring people together. Uh, Americans won't like the sight of this, and they'll rally to our leader. And who better um, to unify the country than Joe Biden? He said, uh, uh, Graham said, who doesn't like Joe Biden? And that does feel like ancient history now uh, in a lot of different ways. That's, you know, basically a year and a half ago. But I think there was a thought that, you know, maybe there'll be a kind of shared revulsion over these images. But like the pandemic and like everything else in our times that we're living through, it became one more log on the burning fire of our partisan divisions. And instead of bringing people together, it just... Uh, increasingly push folks further apart into their red and blue silos. I don't say that to depress people. Um, I wish I had better news here tonight, but this is a book that's pretty honest about the politics of the last two years. It's pretty unsparing, I think, about both parties, and it's there's not a happy ending here. I mean, this is an ongoing story. There's a reason why the book is called This Will Not Pass, because this is not only about yesterday. This is about today and tomorrow in the, the, the country that we're, we're living in uh, currently. Carl, what's your ass assessment of the impact of January 6th on the war between the parties 16 months later? Yeah, well, look, I, I think there was a moment for this to be turned into something constructive. Uh, but the moment passed because once again, we had overreach. If the Democratic leadership had said, we're not going to try and impeach him in the final, you know, 14 days that he's in office, but instead we're going to move to sanction him or censure him, as was done with Andrew Jackson, my suspicion is there wouldn't have been 10 Republicans. There would have been 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, particularly if they'd made it at, at the president a responsibility to step forward and, and, and urge people to leave the Capitol, not after several hours, but after, you know, moments. But there was that overreach. And there actually was talk, as some of you may have heard, we obtained a series of audio tapes um, from lawmakers in this period before and after the 6th. And we heard this on tape that this conversation did happen among high-level Republicans, which is, 
you know, maybe we could do a censure resolution. Maybe Trump would accept that. And because they were just desperate in those days after the 6th to figure out how to both hold the president accountable and also how to sort of mitigate the political challenge that they clearly uh, were going to face. And there was talk about the 25th Amendment. There was talk about impeachment. Of course, McCarthy memorably said at one point that he was going to call President Trump and urge him to resign. But there was also talk about censure, which obviously is sort of the least serious of the sanctions. But that was talked about at great length. And what the Republicans said, Carl, to one another is the Democrats won't go for it, which is to say it, that was not going to be sufficient to the, the sort of crime, uh, if you will, and the House Democrats wouldn't wouldn't be okay with censure. It is an important question, though. History you know, will won't offer this, but what would have been the vote count in the House? There were ten Republicans who yeah. impeached Trump in the House. How many would have stepped forward on censure? Because if, if there were seventy or eighty, Donald Trump will be a hell of a lot busier this year um, going after all the people that censured him. He's obviously very busy yeah. right now targeting those that impeached him. So you know, though, though I think it, it, if he had if that all played out that way his attacks on people would be less productive because, look, n nobody could look at that crowd and say to themselves, this is what they wanted to see, Republican or Democrat. Anybody who has worked in Washington, anybody who's worked in government, anybody who takes an interest in politics, every ordinary American would look at that and say what, what, what all of us said, which is, what the hell are those people doing? But, but look, this was overreach. And there was one specific reason why they went after impeachment and would never do censure, and that is the act of impeaching a president, if successful, thereby forbids that individual from ever seeking public office again. And that was their goal. They didn't want to just sort of have history join together Republican and Democrat and censure his failure to step forward as the leader of our country and say, stop and get the hell out of the Capitol. And they wanted to make certain that he couldn't run again in four years. Now, Jonathan, you call the, what happened that day on January 6th a national humiliation, and yet today, over 16 months later, Trump is still the most influential person in the Republican Party. Yep. What's your explanation for Trump's hold on the Republicans? Oh, well, that's easy. Um, a lot of lawmakers in the Republican Party, or would-be lawmakers in the Republican Party, uh, uh, believe that he has a strong following among rank-and-file voters, and the lawmakers are bowing to the perceived will of their voters. It's just that they think that to cross Trump is to invite sure political defeat in a primary, likely, and that therefore they either are quiet and don't talk about Trump, or they, they praise him and you know, do what Kevin McCarthy does, which is sort of try to keep him close. And so it's just it's just a matter of politicians bowing to what they see as the preference of the voters. Now, before Carl jumps in here, we're obviously now in a primary season, and that perception is being tested right now, which is just how much influence does Trump have among the rank and file of the Republican Party, and has this fealty that, that the politicians have shown toward Trump been necessary? Is that grip really as strong as people like Kevin McCarthy assume it is? Carl, do you agree that uh, Trump, or, or just give us your assessment of his hold on the Republican Party? You've been somewhat outspoken in your Wall Street Journal uh, columns. Uh, I've noticed that too. <laughs> I'm sorry, what'd you say? <laughs> 
disconnect, trying to disconnect the Republicans from Trump. But what, what do you think you're having any success? I mean, I see the, the Georgia governor's race and, yeah. of course, what happened earlier this week. But is, is there a, because when I thought about your title, this will not pass, Jonathan, I wonder, will Trump ever pass? Uh, but Well, we, we don't know. That, that's up to him. But, but, but look, I, I would say that I, I, don't, I, I frankly don't understand this movement of I'm going to go out and endorse all these people. I really don't. Because he was the leader of the party, and now he's putting himself in a position of the leader of a faction of the party. He endorses the winning candidate in Ohio, J.D. Vance. And 68% of Republicans say, I'm not voting for that guy. He endorses a candidate for governor in, uh, in Nebraska, Charles Herbster, who loses. And 70% uh, of Republicans in the state say, I'm voting for one of the other two guys. Uh, so why he's doing this is beyond me. But I do think that this whole process is slowly uh, loosening his hand on the, on, on, the, on the tiller. Now, will it be enough that would keep him from being the nominee in 2024? I don't know. Does he even want to be the nominee in 2024? I don't know. I don't think so. I think he wants to be the kingmaker. But there's on some level, he gets this. Yeah. I noticed, you know, he came out and said on the, the day of the Indiana and Ohio primaries, my record is 22 and 0. <laughs> 22 winners and no losers. Well, I would hope so because 13 of the 22 were unopposed in their elections. <laughs> so that fuzzy close, math, bro. It was a close call. Fuzzy math. There were six. There were six that were in not competitive races. One statewide official and five members of Congress and one in Indiana, four in Ohio. So, so he really had three. And granted, it was three and oh, which is a pretty impressive record. But there's something in him that causes him to say, you know, you know, I was talking to a Texas member. I said, congratulations. I, I see you wear Trump endorsed. He said, I didn't ask for it, didn't need it, don't have an opponent in the primary and not one in the general election. So I think he worked. You know, I'm going to win. <laughs> He put a lot of capital on the table this year that he didn't need to put on the table. I mean, there was no question about his hold on the party. And then to intervene in all these races and sort of try to pick winners, uh, you know, fairly impulsively sort of gets at uh, the nature of Trump, which is that there's, there's no reason for him to sort of wager on a lot of these primaries. They're all running as Trump asked Republicans, what, why take signs? But he can't. He can't help himself. And it does one more thing when he doesn't win these races, or even when he does win the races narrowly, it shows he doesn't have a machine, right? That the Trump endorsement, while significant, it doesn't come with you know legions of door knockers or phone callers or the kind of like throwback to the daily machine of Chicago where you've got sort of like, you know, people on the ground to sort of deliver votes. It's basically him offering his endorsement. And maybe showing up. No, no, no. Total and complete endorsement. My total and complete Capital T, capital C. Um, <laughs> but that said, Carl mentioned 2024. Look, if Trump does run, he's going to be the front runner and he'll be a really formidable candidate to be the nominee again. The Republican Party does, uh, has winner-take-all primary. Okay, what that means is if Donald Trump is in a five-way race in 2024 and he's only getting 38% of the vote, but still winning those states, he gets all those delegates in those states and he is on his way to being the nominee again. If the Republican Party does not consolidate 
uh, against him and sort of find a one-on-one opponent, which seems right now to be pretty unlikely. Going back to January 6th, every year the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library gives what's called the Profiles in Courage Award. They gave it to Gerald Ford many years after pardoning Nixon. They gave it to George H.W. Bush after breaking his vow, read my lips, no new taxes. Uh, Should they be thinking about Mike Pence for a Profile in Courage Award for his uh, certifying the election results? They just gave it to Liz Cheney. They did give it to Liz Cheney? A week or two ago, yeah. You know, look, not to dwell on this, because this really is not the centerpiece of the book, but, but, you know, look... um, Trump, Trump's hold on the party, as, as Jonathan and Alex point out, is strong. But one, one thing that is problematic about it is, is that he is setting up races that we're going to all look at this fall and see them as the, the litmus test of the strength of his message. Mastrano in Pennsylvania, two candidates for Attorney General and Secretary of State in Michigan. You know, David Perdue, the election was stolen. Uh, he's the real president. And if that's all the message is, we're going to lose the governor's race in Pennsylvania and lose the AG's race in Michigan and lose the secretary of state races in Nevada, Arizona, and uh, Michigan. And wherever somebody goes out there and says, my message, my dominant message is, I agree with him, he's the real president of the United States, there are going to be a sufficient number of Republicans who will not vote for him that, that, that they will lose. We saw this on January 5th in Georgia. Right. I, I call it the Lauren S. Bubba McDonald test. How many of you knew that there were three elections on January 5th in Georgia? Two for the U.S. Senate and one for the Public Service Commission. Right, right. And Lauren S. Bubba McDonald Jr. wins election as a Republican to the Public Service Commission with 22,000 votes more than David Perdue and 37,000 votes more than Kelly Leffler. So that means that there are 40 or 50 or 60,000 Republicans who said, you know what, after what I heard on Sunday night, and after all I've heard about the attacks on my governor and my secretary of state, I'm voting for Bubba, but I ain't voting for one of those other two people who are too close to Donald. Yeah, look, uh, 2020 was a really good election for the Republican Party. And this is why it's borderline comical that Trump claims that the election was rigged. If it was a rigged election, it was rigged only for one line on the ballot because the rest of the ballot was pretty good for Republicans in 2020. So if people stole it for, for, stole it for Biden, they then stole it for Biden and then voted for Republicans down the rest of the ballot, which would be a, a very interesting kind of stolen election. Republicans gained seats in the House. They were, appeared to hold serve in the Senate until, until Georgia and I think this is what alarms so many in the party is that, you know, besides Trump losing and then Torpedo in Georgia, they had a pretty good cycle. And I think, uh, you know, Carl mentioned the what if about censure and how many votes that would have gotten. I mean, I would just offer the what if on the other, put the shoe on the other foot, which is what if McConnell after January 6th says, you know, I'm probably in the twilight of my career. I'm going to do, do my party a favor and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to get enough Republican votes to convict Donald Trump in the Senate and we're going to ensure that he can never run for office again. It would have been a stretch, but if he had found enough people who were retiring or not running again in 24 or 26, I think it's possible that McConnell could have found the votes needed to convict Trump in the Senate and that would have ended his career entirely, and we wouldn't be having this conversation today about Trump's impact on the party in 2022 or 24. Well, let's let's switch to the other side of the aisle. 
uh, Jonathan, you say in the book, early in the book, quote, by the end of 2021, Biden had enjoyed one of the most productive first years of any new president, close quote. I'm assuming you make that statement in the context of his dealings with Congress, yet his approval ratings at year end were in the tank and going south, primarily because of the Afghanistan withdrawal, right, right. runaway inflation, a border out of control, and continued COVID spikes, meaning there's no reason to think anything good is going to happen to the Democratic Party in the 2022 midterms. So as we evaluate the job that Biden has done thus far, and that's the other half of your book, right? Uh, Carl famously was known during Bush 43's presidency as Bush's brain. Uh, who have you decided is Biden's brain? Well, this is an important question because people in this room should know, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that we're in North Texas. We probably have a few Republicans in the room tonight. That um, half of the book Maybe. is... A Maybe, just maybe. Yeah, maybe. A half of the book is on 2021 and is about the Biden presidency. And we really wanted to do a comprehensive account of these two years of political crisis in America. Yes, Trump and the end of the Trump years, but also the first year of Biden. And it hasn't gotten all the attention that you know, the McCarthy audio tapes have, but there's a lot of material there on President Biden. And we also didn't want to end this book on January 6th or after January 6th and kind of rush it to press. We knew that there were other books coming out at the end of 21 that were going to deal with Trump. But we wanted to go bigger and take a more comprehensive look. And so we held back and spent all of 21 reporting about, yes, 20, but also what was happening in 21. And we are so thankful that we did that. Because if we had ended this book in the spring of 21 and turned it into Simon & Schuster, it would have had a very different account of the Biden presidency. But we waited, and obviously, August of last year, Afghanistan collapses, and you can really trace Biden's decline. And then, obviously, inflation spikes, and now Biden's numbers have tanked. We have in this book a detailed account of these memos that Biden's pollster, you're asking about Biden's brain, his longtime pollster sent to him starting in the spring of 21, and we got all these, warning Biden, you have a problem on inflation, you have a problem on immigration, you have a problem on crime. His pollster is selling the alarm in these memos that are coming into the West Wing, that are reaching Biden's desk himself. Biden and his people are aware of this, but they don't act. They don't take urgent steps to address those political challenges on the horizon. Instead, they get wrapped up in trying to push a very aggressive, very ambitious, uh, expensive agenda. And they have some early success. They get Manchin to vote for that big American rescue plan in March of 2021. That was sort of a sort of COVID uh, rescue bill. And after that, they feel like they're riding high. And they think, you know, we're going to get infrastructure and we're going to get Build Back Better. We don't have to pick. We can do both. And I think you can look at that, and you can see sort of the, the seeds of Biden's sort of uh, decline. And you add to that the Afghanistan issue and obviously inflation spiking. And I think that captures where Biden is today. But he was warned by, by his pollster, and he, he, he didn't take steps. So he ignored his pollster, so therefore his pollster is not his brain. Who is his brain? So look, I think Biden's somebody who came to the Senate when he was 30 years old in 1973. He has always been his own kind of counselor. He does not have 
an obvious conciliator. He does have a coterie of people who've been around him for a long time. Mike Donilon, who's in the White House, is certainly one of them who writes some of the speeches, who's been in, in Biden's inner circle for a long time. Steve Reschetti, also senior advisor, Ron Klain, his chief of staff, Anita Dunn. And obviously, I think Jill Biden, his wife, and Valerie Biden, his sister. I think you know those are some of the people that Biden's known the longest, uh, Bruce Reed, he listens to the closest, but there, there's no one person who Biden is taking counsel from and sort of making decisions based upon just their advice. Carl, do you have anything to add as to who's Biden's brain? Well, first of all, let me say uh, for political junkies, I think this, look, there's lots of stuff in here about Trump, a lot of stuff about McCarthy and other players. I think one of the great values of this book is it looks at Biden beginning in the campaign and tries to figure out how does the guy operate, what motivates him, what moves him and follows him through. I mean, the description of the vice presidential selection process in 2020 is deeply revealing. And then all the machinations of putting together the cabinet are deeply revealing about the tensions inside Biden world and inside the Democratic Party. So if you, I mean, don't read this book just to sort of like Donald Trump. This is a really deeply, I think, informed view of, of Biden. And, and frankly, I, I think I may be a little bit further along than, than, uh, than, than Jonathan and Alex are in this. But my view is that, that a lot of what we're seeing in the last year and a half, two years, is a reaction to eight years during the Obama years. Because Biden was the disrespected crazy uncle that you love to see at the summer picnic, family picnic. Uh, and, but he was, not, he, was not, he was not a Dick Cheney. He was not a... You know, Al Gore, he was not somebody who was intimately involved in the activities of the, of the White House and treated with enormous respect by the White House staff. And a lot of the people who surround Biden today, Ron Klain, Rashetti, Donilon, these were people who were with the vice president. So that's why those stories in the spring of 2021, more transformational than Obama, more transformational than Lyndon Johnson, maybe even more transformational than any Democratic president since at least FDR. Where the, the White House is gushing over that kind of stuff <laughs> because it's payback time. Right. And, uh, and one of the things that we know, as Jonathan refers to in the book, we know how much Biden feels hurt by how he was treated in the Obama years. Right. He writes it in his own book that he writes after he's vice president. Right. He says, those sons of bitches basically you know, pushed me out of the 2016 race and tilted it all to Hillary, and I know exactly who they are, and I'm going to name them in the pages of my book. Right. And so now it's payback time. Yeah. But, you know, this is one of the things I, I really enjoyed more in the book, the description of this and the description of Jonathan's personal being inside the Capitol on January 6th. Those were sort of the two high points. But this, this thread of Biden, it goes all throughout the book, and it's really... Well, I think really well. Jonathan, when you were mentioning yeah. different candidates for Biden's brain, one of the names you did not mention was Kamala Harris. Right. And as your book points out, Kamala Harris has failed to do anything constructive for the Biden administration during the first 16 months in office. <laughs> so, a little harsh. That's a little harsh. Well, I read the book. I didn't, didn't find the book. anything. I didn't find anything constructive. But anyway, right. what's your prediction of Kamala Harris's sure. uh, political future? So uh, let me just talk briefly, because Carl gave me the opening for this. But 
this is important to understand that Biden and Obama have a rivalry, okay? All of the sort of portrayal of them as the best of friends and this bromance between Joe and Barack, a lot of that is confected for public consumption. The truth is that Biden was picked for political purposes and it's politics. It was a transactional pick. And in the spring of 21, when Biden is riding high, he thinks he is going to have a more transformational agenda than Obama. You know, he meets with a series of historians who come in Doris Kearns Goodwin, Michael Beschloss, Walter Isaacson, and they're kind of pumping Biden up and saying, Mr. President, you could be really big in history. You could be actually as big as FDR. Go for it. And so Biden, who's always had a chip on his shoulder about not being taken seriously by the establishment, sort of he covets that affirmation. It kind of reminds you of another former president that we've had, but he really wants that sort of elite validation, right? And Biden, in an unguarded moment, tells an advisor in the spring of 21, a very different time than now, he says, I don't think Barack would like one bit the coverage of me as more transformational than him. And Pelosi tells somebody else, yep, Barack is jealous of Biden. And Obama is going around telling anybody who will listen, this coverage is BS. Obama, look, he, he's saying, well, when I was president, we had 15 Joe Mansions. The Democratic Party was much more you know, moderate to conservative in 2009. I couldn't do this kind of stuff that, that Biden's doing. So there's, there's lots of that flavor throughout the book. Speaking of... VP selections that were made for obviously political reasons. Look, when Joe Biden, the summer of 2020, was deciding on a VP, all right, he made that choice entirely based on one motivation. Who can help me beat Donald Trump? Period. The end of sentence. There was no consideration given to what that person's policy portfolio would be in the White House, and there was certainly no consideration as to... I, you know, Joe's going to be 80 years old here before long as president. And what does that mean for succession? And who's going to run in 24 if Biden can't, or certainly in 28? Um, that was not taken into account. It was a short-term political play because she was seen as sort of the most effective person that could help Biden win. And to her credit, she helped raise Biden, raise a lot of money, and she hit her marks in interviews, did fine in that, that only debate against Pence, and wasn't really a huge factor. So, you know, net positive during the campaign. But of course, after the campaign ends, we have this in the book, Biden's asked during one of these CNN town halls, I think it was Jake Tapper, he said, uh, a president-elect Biden, what, what role will the vice president play? What, what issues will she have? And Biden punts because he doesn't know the answer, because he hasn't figured that out yet. They don't have a portfolio for her yet. And I think this goes to the heart of the frustration that the White the West Wing has toward her, and by the way, importantly, that she feels toward Biden in the West Wing. I think she's frustrated uh, with them just the same as they're frustrated with her. Now, during well, the, I don't understand that incidentally because they gave her such a great issue to grab a hand hold of the border. I mean, that's so easily solved and great progress is available on it. And she spends a lot of time along it. You'd think that she'd be more. She said, "Not the Mexican border. I'm in South so, and Central America." So Ron Klain, Ron Klain told her, he said, "Look, you know, Biden had that issue too, and it was not an easy issue when he was vice president." you got to embrace this stuff, and you got to try to make it work. But boy, she is sensitive about that issue. We, we have a scene in the book in which Biden is meeting with the Congressional uh, Black Caucus, and he's talking about the vice president. And he just sort of casually mentions that, you know, Kamala's in charge of the border. And she interrupts him in this meeting, the president of the United States, and says, no, Mr. President, 
the golden triangle of Central America, because her actual assignment is the, the, the handful of countries in Central America. It's not the entire border, but the shorthand has become the border. And so when Biden got it wrong in private, she corrected Biden in private. It's an astonishing moment in which a whole room of members of Congress, and she interrupts the president to correct him. Uh, but that it's a very sensitive topic for her. Mm -hmm. Now, during the Biden presidency, two other key players in the Democratic Party are Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and yes. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Right. So, Jonathan, yes. for their performance over the last 16 months since yeah. Biden was sworn in, give Pelosi and Schumer a letter grade and your explanation for why they deserve that letter grade. I, I'm going to dodge that uh, happily. Uh, I'm not going to give letter grades to politicians that I cover. Uh, look, uh, of the two... Pelosi has the closer relationship with Biden. Biden calls her his Catholic sister. That's lowercase s, by the way. Um, his Catholic sister. They're very similar. They're both sort of pre-baby boom, uh, Northeastern uh, Catholic Democrats who very much came of age in a sort of Truman era, sort of labor-oriented, frankly, uh, a machine-dominated uh, Democratic Party. Uh, they both believe that they're true blue liberals, but they're obviously now being lapped uh, by today's left, and they can't quite believe that. And they're resentful when they're portrayed as sort of anything but real progressives by the uh, by the left. But uh, the fact is, is that they're they're in a different uh, a different place. Pelosi has become frustrated, though, with Biden. The last few months, really, you can trace it back to the Build Back Better collapse. She has not done well masking her frustration. Pelosi is famous for lashing out at White House staff because she views staff as staff and principals as principals. She's, she's old school in that way. So she, she is not a big fan of Ron Klain and she will typically avoid criticizing Biden himself. But that's even changed in the last few months. And I think that gets to the heart of her, her uh, unease. I think you know, Nancy Pelosi wanted to build back better uh, agenda passed. I think she wanted it for policy reasons, obviously, but if we're being candid, I think she also wanted it for, for legacy reasons, too, and she's at near the end of her career. She's probably not going to stay in the Congress if Kevin McCarthy is the speaker, and I think she would like to have had that. Chuck Schumer, not as close to Biden. Um, he and Biden were never terribly close in the Senate. Schumer came to the Senate in 1999. Joe Biden came in 1973, all right? So Biden's always viewed Chuck as kind of a new kid on the block, which is a hell of a thing to say about somebody who's 71 years old. Uh, Chuck Schumer is the baby, by the way, of the Congress. You got Pelosi, McConnell, Schumer, and like the, the spring chicken is, is Schumer at 71, um, which tells you a lot about Congress. Look, I think Biden has his frustrations with Schumer. I think he, he believes that he could have been a better Senate leader, probably. He was a man of the Senate himself, and he can't understand why Schumer cannot sort of wrangle those cats in a way that he can get folks across the line. I think what's made, what sort of tempered Biden's frustration with Schumer is the fact that Biden himself now knows how tough it can be to get cinema and mansion in line. So it's hard for Biden to blame Chuck for that too much because Biden's tried himself and they're both pretty darn tough. And there's actually lots of stuff in the book if you're curious about uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, who are two American originals. Uh, there's lots of material in the book about, about both of them, including the secret effort to get Joe Manchin to change parties that Susan Collins and John Thune kind of uh, really pushed in private and um, uh, Manchin declined, but that effort has never fully stopped. There, there are 
trying to get them to, to switch still. And they also tried to get Kirsten Sinema to change parties. And she told a Republican senator who asked, said, I can't change parties. That would mean going home to run in a GOP primary. I can't do that. I have a girlfriend. Um, which tells you a lot about Kirsten Sinema's view of the Republican Party. Uh, but, um, look, I think the bottom line is, I think Biden's closer to Pelosi, respects he, uh, she and Schumer, but I think this are personally, there's a closer vibe with, with Pelosi. Carl, when we talk about the Democratic Party, and obviously we've, we've touched on this, uh, I mean, early on, the so-called moderate Democrats were coming on to Biden saying he was, uh, quote, catering too much to the left. Do you think there was any merit to that argument? And give us your assessment of what percentage of today's Democratic Party are the, quote, progressive left, and what percentage are the, quote, moderate? Well, I'm going to ruin, I'm going to ruin a, a part of the book for you. Uh, Jonathan and Alex make a very convincing case that, that starting in the campaign, Biden, in search of an agenda, says, okay, I'm going to call up Elizabeth Warren and say, you got a very left-wing response to bankruptcy that I opposed when I was in Congress? I'm for it now. And this goes forward. So the point is, is that Biden makes a conscious decision that the way he's going to curry favor in the primaries and through the general election is with the left. Not going to move to the center. And then when he gets into office, this continues. And so, look, the American Rescue Plan, think about this. We got, we got Bill Clinton's Treasury Secretary saying, if you do this, you're putting an accelerant on the, the, the fire of inflation. We don't need another $2 trillion worth of demand pumped into the system right now. We're dangerously close to setting off a wave of inflation that will be difficult to tame and dangerous to the country and dangerous to our party. And they say, oh, it's transitory. Don't worry about it. This is Larry Summers. Larry Summers. So, and then they, then they go on to build back better, which is, you know, a, a th you know it's $3.5 trillion, but it's really $5 trillion. And, it's and it won't cost a penny. And it won't cost a penny. And so... He's, he's thrown in with them. I mean, if we, we have three unindicted co-conspirators here in the, in the effort to diminish the Democratic Party standing in 2021, and that the President of the United States, the Speaker of the House, and the Senate Majority Leader in that order saying, let's not be the, trans the transitional figure with incremental reforms. Let's not go for the easy things. Let's reauthorize the highway trust fund like we have to do. This is, it's every, we have to do it every five years. Let's do it. We, Britain wants a trade deal. Let's do that and get it through the Congress. They buy more from us than we buy from them. There, there are things with regards to China that if we put an emphasis on it, we can get a nice bipartisan vote on it. Uh-uh. We're going to go with something that is way out there designed to appease the progressive element of the Democratic Party. It gets to the heart of the tensions that really de define Biden. So Biden is torn between an impulse to unify the country, to heal the country after you know, COVID, after January 6th, after the whole four years of Trump. This is a country that's driven... Uh, uh, across partisan lines, and I think Biden believes his best asset. I think with some uh, with some, tr some truth to this is his empathy, and believes. Look, I like Mitch McConnell. I've been to Mitch McConnell's political center in Louisville. He's my friend. Uh, like a lot of Democrats can't say that honestly, and Joe Biden can. And I think Biden believes we can get stuff done. We can make this country a more unified place. And Biden himself says, after Trump's gone, the Republicans are going to have an epiphany. 
and I think they're going to be more willing to work with me. All right, so that's one side of Biden. The other side of Biden is the fellow who came to the Senate at age 30, ran for president three times, coveted the presidency for 40 years, and he finally gets the brass ring at the in his late 70s. And he realizes, you know, this is my moment. I've got to go big, and I've got to create a lasting legacy for myself. And so he has that choice between, as Carl put it, sort of being that transitional figure, more of a Gerald Ford type, national emergency president, uh, sort of consensus-oriented guy who got along well with Congress, or being a bigger, more FDR, LBJ-like figure who sort of left his imprint on policy in America. And it's pretty clear that he, he goes for the latter in 2021, and he comes away with uh, not everything he'd hoped for. If Joe Biden had 2020 hindsight and an opportunity to do it again, do you think he'd still go big? I think he would take yes for an answer from Joe Manchin. This is lost to history, but Joe Manchin put on paper in the summer of 2021 a memo for Chuck Schumer outlining what he, Joe Manchin, would support in the Build Back Better agenda and including a rough price tag. And I think the Schumer and Biden thought that they could persuade Manchin to go beyond what he outlined, and they decided to give that a go instead of just taking it and telling Pelosi, this is the best we're going to get out of the Senate. You just got to say yes. And instead of doing that, they decided to sort of push Manchin. And once the fall got here, and once Afghanistan went south, and then once inflation was picking up, Joe Manchin to politicians, politician, man. I mean, he, he is sniffing what's happening back home, and any excuse he can find to stay away from that bill, he's going to grab onto. But for a while there in the summer, he was for something, and they could have taken something. Do you, do you think that Biden knew that he had signed that document? Do you think Schumer went down to the White House and said, here, I got him I know. on paper? I know that that conversation was not held immediately, shall we say. The White House did know that that, that Manchin signed that, but uh, not 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 immediately. But how, how much time? I think it was weeks, yeah. But here's the thing. I think in the White House before Afghanistan, you know, I, they're still of the mindset that, yeah, we can get Joe to go for something bigger. After all, he had folded back in March on the American Rescue Plan. He voted for that. That was a big ticket item. And, you know, for all the, the hell that Manchin catches on the left, I had a Republican lobbyist once say to me about Joe Manchin, He's always there for us when we need him the least, which is a good line for Republicans about Manchin. Look, he voted against the Trump tax cuts, all right? He, he voted against the repeal of Obamacare, okay? Uh, he voted to impeach Trump. Um, he voted to confirm, you know, basically uh, all of Biden's cabinet secretaries. I think he opposed most of Trump's. He's not a conservative Democrat and, and who blocks everything that Democrats put through. He's a party guy on a lot of the big votes. And I, I just raised that, A, because I think our portrayal of Manchin is more nuanced than most portrayals, but also because if you're the Biden people and you got him on the ARP in the spring of 21, and you're thinking to yourself, Manchin always falls in line in the end on the big stuff, and we'll eventually get him. And I think that, 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 missed, that missed the mark. Now, one of the reasons we have such a big turnout for these World Affairs Council programs is because we give our audience plenty of time to ask questions. Yes. So, uh, yes, sir, and does somebody have a microphone? Uh, thank you for standing up. Here comes the microphone. All right, folks. Matthew Roberts. Um, I worked in Afghanistan for four years with USAID, so I have quite a bit of experience there. And I also probably am not part of the same party that many of the people are here, but that doesn't matter. 
when I saw what we were doing in Afghanistan with, with uh, the last several months, I saw this was a disaster coming. Why I say that is because I don't believe in having a party affiliation as a religion. It's not a religion. You, you work with your conscience. So, I'll, I'll finish up. So, Question, the, uh, please. Yes, I'm going to get a question. Okay, so the question is this. We tend to like to uh, say we were responsible, whatever party, for what happened that was good past tense. And we want to throw it at the bad party if we, you know, for anything that didn't go right. So in the privacy of the confessional we have right here, how much of what's going on right now with, you know, Biden's terrible record or votes and all that, excuse me, polls, how much is Biden? How much is Trump? How much is Republican? How much is Democrat in where we are right now? Thank you. Carl, I think Carl will have a view on that. Yeah. Look, um, with regard to the, first of all, thank you for your service. In a, Carl, put the mic closer to yeah, your mouth. Thanks, thanks for your service and a thankless job in an important place. Uh, AID in Afghanistan. Um, let's be honest. The negotiations conducted by the Trump administration laid the predicate for the withdrawal in, in Kabul. And it was only the efforts of the then Secretary of State and the then Secretary of Defense that kept that from happening to, you know, in, before Trump left office. Uh, and so I'm, I'm critical of the Trump policy on Afghanistan, which was the negoti chief negotiator is a friend and colleague of mine from Bush 43 years, Zal, Zal Khalazad. But this was a big mistake. I, I have a slightly different view of its impact on, on Biden's numbers. I think Biden's numbers began to sink in the summer, in June, July, and August, for a variety of reasons. Big Build Back Better seemed too big, too expensive. It made the Democrats look dysfunctional. It wasn't really clear. It made him look like a normal Paul, rather than the American Rescue Plan, let's overcome COVID. It was a bunch of special interest, you know, welfare program kind of things. So it began before that. But what we saw on those days, with the withdrawal of American troops from Kabul, not only, I think, torpedoed his numbers, but I think it was one of the four or five things that went into the mind of Vladimir Putin that caused him to miscalculate. He first looked at the uh, decision to basically crack down on American energy independence in the early part of the administration and said, "Why you, you've worked so long to get this gigantic strategic weapon of being able to export energy. Why are you giving it up? He looked at the defense budget in March, in which the administration said, we're going to have a 1.5% increase in defense spending. It's less than inflation. And the, and the second and third paragraphs of the news release heralded all the new climate initiatives in the defense budget. Then we had June, when we, when, or excuse me, May, when they gave up the sanctions on Nord Stream 2 for nothing in return. And Putin's saying, why did I get that? And then in June, we stopped... We halt the transfer of lethal weapons to Ukraine because we've got an upcoming meeting with Putin. Then comes, and we don't start them again until November, and then we go to August. And I think these were, you know, not the only reasons that Putin acted, but I think it was a, was a big reason in his mind. Now, this is not addressed in the book, but this is my own personal view of it. Yeah, look, I think presidents tend to uh, be blamed for what happens on their watch. That, that That's a story as old as American democracy. And... Uh, uh, Republicans, you know, will take on Democrats and blame them when they're in power, and and uh, and vice versa. And uh, that's and we should really spend all of our time blaming the media. Is my personal. there we go? <laughs> first, there there we go. Who else? Okay, uh, at the back, Richard. Thank you, thank you, Talmadge. Many of us in North Texas believe that Susan Rice 
is running the White House, and two, the latest polls indicate that Joe Biden only has 26% of the Hispanic yeah. approval yeah. in the United States. Yeah. Could you both comment on this? Well, I can say with considerable confidence that Susan Rice, while an advisor in the White House, is is not running the White House. Uh, um, she's a sort of career foreign policy person who's now working on domestic policy. Um, I think is a valued aide, but I think that that's that's not accurate. I don't know where you heard that from. Um, look, I think the Democrats have a real challenge on their hand when it comes to working class voters across uh, ethnicities. All right. The, the class inversion of American politics is a double-edged sword for the Democratic Party. It won them a lot of seats in 2018, including where we're sitting right now, right? A place like Highland Park represented by a Democrat in the House, a place like, um, uh, you know, University and uh, the sort of country club of Houston uh, represented by a Democrat. That would have been unthinkable in this state 20. 30 years ago, but I think because of the sort of educated voters drift away from the Republican Party of Donald Trump, a lot of the Bush crowd, <clears throat> you know, uh, has voted for Democrats, at least moderate ones like Colin Allred here and Lizzie Fletcher in Houston, all right? So I think in the, a lot of the suburbs in the country in 18 and 20, there was a considerable backlash against Donald Trump because people with college degrees found him to be, frankly, appalling. Now, the downside for the for the um, Democratic Party is that working class voters, uh, while of mixed views about Donald Trump, have largely recoiled from the Democratic Party that was the sort of bread and butter of their parents and grandparents' uh, generation because uh, they're in a lot of cases voting on culture and they see that today's Democratic Party as culturally alien to who they are. Places like South Texas where... You had uh, counties in the you know, Rio Grande Valley that were voting for Democrats for president 70, 30, 80, 20, every four years. And now it's a much more competitive place, and you're going to see that, I think, in 2022, where you can see the GOP pick up a couple of House seats in the Rio Grande Valley. Again, would have been unthinkable 20 to 30 years ago for that to happen, but that's the nature of the class inversion of today's two parties. So I guess the, the sort of short version is, you know, God giveth and God taketh away. I think it's helped Democrats certainly in places like this and, and, and more in other suburbs around the country, but the challenge for them is they've lost a lot of their blue-collar base. And blue-collar, I think, is oftentimes a shorthand for white, but it shouldn't be, right? Because I don't black, Asian, Hispanic, white, whatever— Democrats are having challenges with working class voters, and that presents a real challenge to their political future. Yes, sir. Yes, thank you. Uh, Will Robinson. Uh, and Carl, I, I read a lot of your editorials, and I'm going to... You should read every one of them. I think I do. <laughs> not just so, some of them, not many of them, all of them. I, well, my wife... Thursday was, morning, first thing. I, I read... I, I, actually, I work hard on those things, man. <laughs> One that you wrote, you said that Joe Biden uh, ran, I think it was you, ran as a moderate, but as soon as he got into office, it, it was like we elected Bernie Sanders, and Joe Manchin was the only one-man show forcing him to keep his election promises. That, was that yours? Yeah, it's sort of vaguely in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. I said it more eloquently, but you got the general direction. Yeah, no, I, I, 
Your question is? My question. Uh, in the last three weeks or so, I'm noticing this uh, argument coming out, or the, the slogan coming out of the Democratic Party about mega, and ultra mega. Is that going to backfire? First of all, it's MAGA. MAGA, MAGA. But yeah, MAGA, MAGA. Uh, what, let's call the whole thing off. Uh, it's just, <laughs> no, 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 look, look, they're in a bad shape. I mean, Carl's diet MAGA, okay? He's like MAGA light. Yeah. Like very light. Yeah. MAGA. Uh, Jonathan's right. The party in power has to defend things as they are. And when you have 70% of the American people saying the country's going in the wrong direction, and 26% approve of the president's handling of inflation, and 32% approve of his handling of the economy, and just slightly more than that approve of his handling of foreign affairs, it ain't going to be a pretty picture. So they're desperate. Right now they're flailing. And, and this, you know, we, we, three or four weeks ago, it was going to be a uh, response to the leak depending on Roe. And now it's going to be ultra MAGA. And they're going to be, we're going to see five or six other attempts between now and the November election to try and make things turn around. But they ain't. If you look at it, by the time we get to the 1st of June, a president's numbers in a midterm election like this sort of lock things in. And there ain't going to be anything that happens in the remaining, you know, 10 or 11 days in, in, in May to change that for the Democrats. Since the creation of the second, I teach at the University of Texas at Austin, and in, since, the, since, the, since the creation of the second party system with the election of James Monroe in 1818, there have only been two first midterm elections in which the White House party gained seats Here in the House, go. 1934 and 2002, and this ain't either one of them. Who was running politics for Bush in 2002? I, I forgot. What happened? Oh, I remember who it was. It was of Ken Melman. It was, his it was Ken Melman. Yes, That's it was Ken Melman. There you go. Um, Ed Gillespie. Uh, Look, I think um, it's always tough for a party in power. And Democrats want to make this a referendum, not a choice. And uh, 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 Scott reads in the back of the room, how many times have we heard this referendum? Uh, the party in power always wants to make it a referendum, not a choice. Um, I'm sorry, a choice, not a referendum, rather, because they don't want to be sort of at a time people are so sour in this country, they don't want to be judged entirely. Biden has got this line he loves to use. He says, you know, uh, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And that's what they're trying to do right now is they're trying to establish a contrast with the alternative because if the election's a referendum on them, this country is a pretty sour place. I saw a poll last week that had the right track, wrong track question. Is the country on the right track or headed in the wrong direction? And the right track was 17%, not a typo. 17% of voters said the country's headed on the right course. I, that tells you everything about why they're trying to turn out to this MAGA stuff. The best thing Democrats could conjure up is the specter of Donald Trump. They want to run against Donald Trump forever because they know that that alienates a lot of voters in this country. And so they're trying to exhume Donald Trump. And of course, Donald Trump is happy to be... Um, a cast front and center to Carl, Carl's great dismay. Uh, but look, that's the Democrat strategy is keep running against Trump forever. Yeah. It worked very effectively in the Virginia gubernatorial elections. <laughs> For, they defeated Glenn Youngkin because he looked and acted like Donald Trump. Oh, wait a minute. He won. That's right. Terry McAuliffe loved. Yeah. Well, MAGA is shorthand for Trump. They're just running against Trump is sort of all they're doing. And, this is the great irony is like the rank and file that loves Trump, uh, I don't think fully appreciates that 
the Democratic Party wants to keep running against Trump. Uh, that's their best asset, they believe. Yeah. Ray Termini, uh, Donald Trump seems to have a lot of problems with the Southern District of New York. How, how <laughs> important will that be? And secondly, if he doesn't run in, two, in 2024, who will be the there leading contenders? Oh, Ro, that's all you, man. Come on. Am I like your dog? You know, you just sort of <laughs> bark, bark, roll over, boy, roll over. Um, for the good ones. First of all, I think we're in agreement on the first half of your. I'm not certain how much liability he has with the Southern District. I, I think it's. I think he may have a little bit with the Attorney General and the Westchester Golf Course, et cetera. He may have a problem with uh, the Feds on the. Presidential Records Act and taking top secret material to Mar-a-Lago. Not, I'm not certain that they have a skiff, a secure facility. Bob, do you think, Ambassador, do you think they got a skiff at Mar-a-Lago? I doubt it. Uh, so, but I, I, look, that I, don't, I don't think that's going to be the issue. Um, uh, as to the other, what was your other? Oh, the contenders. Look, I don't know, but I can tell you this. Some of you, in fact, I think may have been there. Who was in Austin on May 7th of 2021 for the conference? Do we have a couple people from here? Uh, anyway, we had a we had a, an event to reward Republican donors for our voter registration, get out the vote effort. And in alphabetical order, we had Chris Christie, Tom Cotton, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Marco Rubio, Rick Scott, and Tim Scott. Not Greg Abbott. And uh, he was there, but he, he was not one of the ones who was interviewed for 45 minutes by a member of the Texas congressional delegation. And at the end of the day, everybody was out there having their cocktail uh, on the patio, and the general response was, I feel better. We have a team. We have talent. We have a bench. We have depth. And I think we're going to see on both sides, I don't, I'm for one, I don't think Biden runs. I mean, they're not going to nominate an 82-year-old guy who's already got difficulties. And it's not going to be Kamala Harris because that cackle just completely disqualifies her. But I think we're going to see some very interesting people on both sides who are going to merge. And um, and they're going to be more on the Republican side than the names that I mentioned. Nikki Haley wanted to come that day, for example, and had to, her daughter was graduating from, from uh, nursing school. You know, Ted Cruz is going to run. Josh Hawley is going to run. We're going to have some interesting governors who are going to run. Uh, it's going to be a wide open contest. And I think similarly on the Democratic side. No, I mean, it's so striking that, you know, Carl speaks for a lot of people at the upper echelons of the Republican Party. The appetite to move on from Trump is so immense among Republican leaders and frankly, among some in the grassroots. But Trump still has a really firm hold on a lot of voters. We, we have an anecdote in the book that tells you a lot about this moment. And this gap between the leaders and the voters in the Republican Party is uh, Roger Marshall, a guy I know Scott knows well from Kansas, who's a first-term senator from Kansas, a very conservative state. And Marshall is reporting back to his colleagues in Washington every time he comes back from Kansas. You know, I did four events over the weekend, and uh, there were only 17 Trump mentions at my events. He's counting the number of Trump mentions every time he's back home at grassroots events because he and his colleagues are hoping and praying that the fever is going to break and their voters will eventually get tired of Trump and want to move on to the point where a U.S. senator is counting Trump mentions at events. And coming back to the lunches held every week in the Senate GOP caucus and saying how many times Trump's name was mentioned, that tells you everything about this appetite to move on from a lot of Republican leaders. And the question is now, you know, are the voters there too? Are they going to be willing to move on? And I think that that is very much an unresolved question.
to hear the contrasting perspectives on presidential politics that come from dynamos Jonathan Martin and Karl Rove brings much-needed balance to American voters. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.